return in God's inspired word this evening to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, we read the first 20 verses. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied, and all the men were about twelve. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened, and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them, and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks, and God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus and fear fell on them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified and many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. The text to which I call your attention this evening is verses 19 and 20. 
of Acts 19, many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the first Psalter number we sang this evening, 313, began with the words, What shall I render to the Lord? What shall my offering be for all the gracious benefits he has bestowed on me? We just sang from that 21st section of Psalm 119, observant of thy law and truth, I walk before thy sight. When we think about the power of the gospel and the effects of that gospel upon the lives of God's people, upon our lives, we can look at Ephesus as an example of how Christ works in the midst of his church and the powerful change that he brings. We can look at Ephesus when it comes to the effects of the gospel upon marriage. Because if you read Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, in that well-known section in which he speaks of the roles, the callings of husbands and wives, then you realize that marriage, redeemed by Christ, reflects the mystery the covenant relationship between Christ and the church, that's a powerful testimony of the radical change produced by the Christian life and perspective, the power of Christ's life in us. That was a radical change to the common marriage in that culture of the apostles' day where women were so poorly treated and the power of the gospel was such that the change wrought in the marriages of God's people were a witness to the world. In the chapter that we consider this evening, we have another example of how the gospel empowers us and specifically how the Holy Spirit applies that gospel to our hearts in such a way that it brings change to our lives. Sometimes radical change, necessary change, and that 
as evident in Ephesus very quickly. The life of Christ in us, the embrace, our embrace of his life and work and word will be seen in us. The word of God will be seen as prevailing, to use the language of verse 20, prevailing over the thoughts that once governed us and the behavior that may have characterized our lives apart from the gospel. That came to expression in a particular way in Ephesus as we consider now the words of our text. I call your attention to the book burning. And as we consider this theme, we notice the setting, secondly the event, and finally the outcome. If we are to understand the significance of the event recorded here in Acts 19, verses 19 and 20, we have to take into account the setting indicated by the context. The events recorded in the first 20 verses of Acts 19 took place in Ephesus during Paul's ministry there and the early years of his ministry there. He labored there approximately three years, according to verse 31 of Acts 20. Ephesus was a prominent city in the Roman Empire. It was the most important city in the province of Asia, located on the western shores of Asia Minor, what today is the country of Turkey. Ephesus was a large commercial center for that entire region. And as we read later in this chapter, it was a city well known for its worship of the goddess Diana. Diana was her Roman name. She had been worshipped by the Greeks under the name Artemis. Her worship had gone on for centuries. And a spectacular temple had been built in Ephesus for the worship of Diana, a temple that was in fact noted as one of the seven wonders of the world at that time. If Islam is the dominant religion of that part of the world today, the worship of Diana was in the Apostles' day. And while the idolatry of Artemis or Diana was widespread throughout the Greek and then the Roman world, Ephesus was the noted center of that worship. And when I speak of worship, I speak of worship in the broad sense of the word. It was worship, the form of which also contributed widely to the economic life of the region. It was woven into the political and cultural identity of the city of Ephesus. We might have difficulty even understanding the influence of this idolatry if we confine ourselves to the thoughts of a stone idol 
for example, and its associated images in temple worship. Our brothers and sisters in Singapore would have a better understanding of this because they are surrounded yet with the same type of idolatry. But we do well to remember that idolatry takes on many different forms. We touched on that this morning in our consideration of the first commandment. And if we just wrap our minds for a moment around the idolatry of entertainment in our culture and the worship of pleasure and the far-reaching economics involved with the entertainment industry, including the sports arena, then we might better understand how Paul's labors fit into that culture. Just as today, when we do not expect a widespread acceptance of the gospel among those who are given over to their various forms of idolatry, Paul did not look to find in Ephesus a ready and widespread reception. He went expecting very difficult labors, as he had elsewhere, including Philippi, where he and Silas had been imprisoned, and in the cities that he visited after Philippi, being driven from every one of them by those who would kill him. But so precious was the gospel to Paul such a treasure did he find it that he would press on in his calling to preach that gospel. How precious is that gospel to you and to me? When you stand before the wonder of your salvation, are you so filled with love for Christ and a heartfelt thankfulness for what he has done for you, that you thrill with this gospel and are ready to press on in the calling that he has given you to live for his glory? Paul pressed on, not for personal gain, but in love for Christ and in the consciousness of what Christ had given him. In arriving at Ephesus, the apostle found a few believers, 12 men, and he began with them, teaching them the fullness of the gospel in a way that they had not yet heard. But Paul didn't stop there. He went to the synagogue, to those who in the history of their generations, had been entrusted with the word of God. And there he also proclaimed, as stated in Acts 20, verse 27, all the counsel of God. It's interesting, too, throughout this section, and as Paul recounts in Acts 20, his labors in Ephesus, how the preaching of the apostle is spoken of using several different terms. He went among them preaching the kingdom of God 
Acts 20, verse 25, declaring the whole counsel of God, but he speaks of that preaching in terms of testifying the gospel of the grace of God. Acts 20, verse 24, testifying repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 20, verse 21. In the immediate context of what we consider here in Acts 19, we read of that gospel preaching in terms of speaking boldly as well as disputing or confronting error by way of dialogue and persuading. Now, a study of each of those expressions would be beneficial to a biblical understanding of preaching. But the point here is that the word of God itself is the power of that preaching. Paul didn't confront error and persuade his audience by setting forth his own opinion, his own philosophy. There were many in that day who did that even as there are many today who do that. But the tool of persuasion, if I may use that expression to make my point, is the word of God. The word of God. Paul expounded the scriptures. He expounded the scriptures to reveal their authority their sufficiency, their substance. Which is to say, Paul unfolded before them Jesus Christ as the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The text we consider reveals the mighty power of the word of God. The context of this chapter emphasizes that the power of the word of God is twofold. First, bringing confusion and confirming the rejection of those who are the enemies of the gospel. Verse 9 gives expression to a truth revealed in a number of passages throughout scripture when it says that divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way, the term way referring to the way of the Lord, the doctrine that Paul proclaimed, that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, as well as those who followed that way. It's interesting in light of verse 8 to see that these people were willing to hear the gospel proclaimed for about three months. Paul was able to make clear, even boldly setting forth, the nature of the kingdom of God and the exaltation of Christ Jesus for three months. The apostles set forth the fundamentals of the gospel. Where? 
in the synagogue, in the synagogue, there he set forth the word of God. In other words, he was preaching to those who were familiar with the scriptures, but who were yet in bondage to the law, having failed to see the wonder to which the law pointed, that of salvation in Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, the Jews clung to their own corrupted view of religion, a view focused on an earthly perspective of the kingdom and which, being man-centered and legalistic, fueled the pride of the human heart. Whereas their own religion enabled them readily to overlook the issues of the heart, and the summary of the law taught by Jesus, and therefore gave them ample opportunity to look down upon others and to think of themselves quite highly because they were the religious ones. These people had no need for Christ, nor desire to look to Christ for their only salvation, let alone to listen to the apostle who pointed to Christ as the Lord over our whole life. Too proud to be taught, they stood in their own opinion, showing themselves as hard-hearted and hard-headed as had been their fathers before them who had killed the prophets. They proved that by their reaction to the apostles' preaching. They criticized the apostles' doctrine. They began to find fault with his preaching. They criticized his approach to the scriptures, his pointing to Christ as the fulfillment of the law. They criticized those who followed that way use the language of the text, they spoke evil, spreading their pernicious opposition to Christ until God himself removed that gospel from them. But the power of that word of God, the word of God preached by the apostle, was also the power of God unto salvation in all those who believed. Those who believed followed the apostle as he left his labors at the synagogue and began setting forth the word of truth among the Gentiles. Paul found an opportunity to teach daily in the lecture hall of a man named Tyrannus. We learned that part of the day Paul would spend in his tent-making trade to support himself, and part of the day he would open the scriptures to teach. This went on for about two years, verse 10 tells us. But the power of that word unto salvation is seen in the rest of what verse 10 tells us. 
and this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks, in this center of idolatry and magic, in this prominent world trade center, the fame of Paul's miracles and the word that he preached spread far and wide. Not only tradesmen who traveled to Ephesus, but also those who came to the city to pay homage to the goddess Diana were intrigued by the reports concerning this man, the Apostle Paul, and were led by God to him that they might hear the gospel that Paul unashamedly proclaimed. You might think from reading the chapter that the miracles that Paul performed were the means by which many were saved. And in fact, those miracles played a part in the confusion of those who rejected the gospel the signs and wonders performed by the apostle were nothing new, but they were new to many in Ephesus. And the nature of those miracles were extraordinary, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs and aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. We do well to notice that Luke, the physician who penned the book of Acts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, emphasizes in verse 11 that it was God who wrought those special miracles by the hand of Paul. In Ephesus, as is found among many even today, there was much superstition. And there were also those who played to that superstition by practicing magic. And we learn in the words of our text, there was a widespread pursuit of magic and things of the occult in the population at Ephesus. The object of that participation in the occult and what is often referred to as sorcery the attempt to exercise supernatural power over people and their businesses was purportedly to carry on conversation and to receive guidance from invisible persons, whether gods of their imagination or those who had previously died, or to receive their assistance in curing diseases and performing wonders of, or other works. Evident from ancient writings is the fact that some involved in these practices made use of the names or titles of the true God, which names and perhaps even blasphemous use of those names they had learned from some of the Jews not unlike the ungodly today receiving their conception of God, their understanding of God from 
wayward nominal Christians who themselves profane or, or abuse the name of the ever-blessed Holy One. But those who involve themselves in these activities would often follow certain formulas and they would recite specific incantations and use certain charms in the attempt to make money by their involvement in these activities. So when the wonders wrought by God through the apostle were observed and word of these wonders spread, there were certain vagabond Jews, we read, the seven sons of a man named Sceva, who attempted in vain to practice magic and to use the name of the Lord Jesus in doing so. They were those who traveled around looking for opportunities to practice their magical arts for income. And here, they would show themselves magicians of the same God as Paul by casting the devil out of a man. The incident itself is not the object of our attention this evening, except to show that what God revealed to them is that he indeed bore power. But the power that he would reveal and the saving efficacy of his name was not in merely using his name or in reciting certain religious phrases. The power that God would reveal in the name of his exalted son was a power to bring to repentance and faith, a power that he could exert or withhold according to his purpose. And the wonders given Paul to perform were given to prove the authority of the name in which Paul preached and the word that Paul proclaimed. We have to remember those same truths today. There are many in the church world today who don't differ fundamentally from the seven sons of Sceva. They use the Christian religion and the name of Christ as some magical formula for their supposed salvation. So long as they attend church and use the right religious phrases, they like to think that all is well. Others commit the same sins as those vagabond Jews by seizing upon the signs and wonders of the apostles as if those wonders by themselves demonstrate a certain ministration of the Holy Spirit they're grievously mistaken. When we remember that the signs and wonders given the apostles were given them exactly for the purpose of confirming the divine authority of the word that they preached, a fact stated explicitly in the last verse of Mark's gospel account, as well as confirmed in the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 2, 
then we also see that the emphasis in this chapter is the word preached and the power of that gospel unto salvation by the work of the Holy Spirit. How do you receive that word? What effect does that word of God have in your own life? So in verse 10, for example, we are told that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And as we shall see in verse 20, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Christ was at work by his Holy Spirit and that through the word of his gospel. The event, therefore, that our text records follows as an act of the true conversion of those who came under the power of that gospel. We read in verse 19, Many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver, here we have evidence of true conversion demonstrated. The faith worked in them by the word of God brought conviction of sin to their hearts. They were given to see the nature of the sin in which they had been involved. It was idolatry. They saw it as the offense against God that it is. They knew that the kingdom of God was closed to any ensnared in idolatry and that the, their only salvation was through the Christ whom Paul preached. The Lord Jesus sent by God to pay the price for that sin and the guilt of his people, the Lord Jesus, who was now victorious, exalted at God's right hand, working powerfully by his Holy Spirit through the word, even confirmed by the signs and wonders they had seen. And so we read, they came and confessed and showed their deeds willingly in heartfelt repentance they proved the honesty of their sorrow for sin by confessing their sin they acknowledged the folly to which they had given themselves they grieved their wickedness they devoted themselves to renouncing it forever but their repentance wasn't mere words. They took all the instruments of their sin, the books in which they had invested great sums of time and money, and they made a bonfire out of them. The text tells us 
This was an act of great cost. 50,000 pieces of silver was the value of those books. No matter how you count that silver, whether you use the Roman denarius or the Jewish shekel, we're talking about thousands of dollars worth of books going up in flames. But that cost was little in the eyes of, of these new converts compared to the price that Jesus paid for them. And consider the testimony that their actions gave in that city where so much value was given to magic and superstition and the worship of Diana. What are you doing? Those books are valuable. No, they're not valuable to us anymore. We've seen the folly of them. We now belong to him who has power over death, who alone holds the future in his hands. His name is Jesus. Let me tell you about him. The importance of this word of God to us is found in the effects that the word of God, the gospel of our salvation, has in the lives of those who are saved. We have to realize that the preaching of the gospel is just as powerful in our day as it was in the time of the apostles. When the Holy Spirit works by that word in our heart, he seals that gospel of our salvation. And the result is in our own lives, one of heartfelt sorrow for sin and humble repentance toward God. When the Holy Spirit works in us, as he did in Ephesus, we no longer cling to our idols. We no longer say, oh, just a few of those books, Lord. I'll give up most. I'll throw most of them on the fire. But if I hold on to just a few, they're not really idols, are they? Sin is powerful, people of God. The idols promise us much, give us nothing. The man who is given to drink might like to say, just a little, Lord, just a little. And in doing so, he clings to his idol. If an intelligent woman, having laid hold of opinions contrary to the word of God, comes under the power of the gospel, she doesn't cleave to those opinions. She renounces them as foolishness and brings her mind into subjection to the will of God. 
If a young person has been ensnared in the idolatry of pleasure-seeking, it doesn't matter how powerful those pleasures have held him and how long he's been addicted to them, the power of the word will break that bondage and bring a change that no man can explain. It's the power of God which alone breaks the stubborn heart and softens the hardened will. When the gospel does its work, which is to say, when the Holy Spirit does his work by the word, the effect in our hearts is this. No matter the cost, we will rest content with nothing in our lives that would grieve the Holy Spirit. The outcome of this book burning is told us in verse 20. So, that is in this way, mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. To put it in a more modern expression, we would say in this way and powerfully, the word of God brought increase and prevail. Paul would later shed light on this event and the effects of gospel preaching when he testified of what was seen among God's people in Thessalonica. We are told in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians that the apostle observed in the church at Thessalonica something that thrilled his soul. He observed among those who had been saved a clear evidence of the power of the gospel in their lives. He doesn't unfold in any detail what those effects were that he saw. In fact, Paul speaks in very little depth about the Christian life in its expression. But what he says is that he observed with heartfelt thanks to God their work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. But concerning those effects, Paul points to the one who alone deserves our praise when he says in verse 5, For our gospel came to you, not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. So powerfully did the Spirit work in them by that gospel that Paul said, ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. He returns to this thought in the next chapter when he says in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, for this cause also thank we God without ceasing because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God 
which effectually worketh also in you that believe. The Spirit works by the Word. The Word is the power of God unto salvation. And the Holy Spirit, by that Word, works in us the radical change necessary to live in fellowship with God. The Holy Spirit, by that gospel, brings us to true conversion, moves us to godly repentance, including the complete putting away of our idolatry. He does that, as he did in Ephesus, by opening our eyes to the exceeding sinfulness of our sin by pointing us to the shed blood of Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation, and by filling our hearts with a desire to live in wholehearted devotion to the God of our salvation who formed us for his praise. May others see of us and of this congregation May they see in us and say, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for the powerful work of the Holy Spirit by the gospel. And we thank thee, Father, for the means that thou hast chosen to use to call thy people powerfully, efficaciously to repentance and faith, to change even radically our lives, that we might reflect the glory of thy grace, the power of the gospel, the riches of the treasures that are ours belonging to Jesus Christ our Lord. Look upon us in thy mercy, strengthen our faith, Hear our prayers for Jesus' sake. Amen.